0: You know, sometimes the most effective way to address immaturity in others, it can be by modeling maturity ourselves. Um, You know, that doesn't, of course, uh, discount the reality that there's always going to be issues that are going to require our direct attention. Like when you hear the parents say, son, that (laughs) carrot stick does not belong in the dog's nose, right? (laughs) We're we're always going to have those things. But The simple act of modeling on an ongoing basis what it is that we long to see develop in those we love, that exercise can have a powerful effect. The phrase uh, we tend to use these days is something like this, be the adult in the room. And uh, that can be no small challenge, particularly living in a culture uh, that seems to idolize immaturity right? Uh, We're often told to adult only when absolute necessary, but, uh, but the bent is on being as irresponsible as possible. So consume in excess, you know, binge watch as much as possible, play video games, do whatever you want until someone steps in the room and puts an end to it. So in many ways, probably in too many ways, our, our maturity level in our culture gets dialed into about that of a nine year old. Um, and so, for that reason, uh, adults in the room are necessary. Probably today and now more than ever, simply to, to model in an authentic way that growing up is good, um, that, that being responsible is not like a plague to be avoided. And that there is a whole lot more to live for on the other side of adolescence. All right? I'll tell you, at least for myself, I don't want to go back to when I was a teenager. I'm glad those days are over. Um, so, open up your Bible to First Corinthians, chapter four. Um, we are in the fourth week of a series that's called "Growing Pains," where we're working through the book of First Corinthians, and it's a book that the Apostle Paul wrote to a a church that you might describe as childish. On a spiritual level, they were in need of growing up. And, uh, and so, you know, there's a difference between childish and childlike. So Jesus calls his followers to have a childlike faith, a, a faith that doesn't doubt our Heavenly Father, one that willingly trusts and follows his lead. That's childlike Um the Corinthian church, they had a childish faith. It was proud and selfish and cranky and, and just self-absorbed. And, and so Paul kind of steps in the room as, as the adult. And in the passage this morning, he's modeling for, for them and for us what spiritual maturity looks like. Uh, because maturity is caught as much as it is taught. And so what he does, he describes the way he sees himself, he, he talks about the values that he's aligned his life around, and, and what matters most to him. And so let's, let's take a look and see the model of maturity that gets laid out. If you want to open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, I'm starting in verse 1, and it's going to be right here on the screen behind me as well. Uh, so it says this, This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required of students that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, but I am, thereby, I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive receive his commendation from God. So um we'll stop right there and just kind of like uh, looking at that snapshot uh, maybe we could kind of sum up what we see here what is the model of spiritual maturity that's laid out here you you might say it it's a it's a life that intentionally aims at pleasing God every day in every way. Maybe that's how the adult in the room does life as a Christian. So, Paul's life was set on serving the Lord, and he makes the point to say that, and that's in contrast with the Corinthians. Their lives were set on serving themselves. Uh, In fact, in in verse 8, Paul kind of sarcastically makes this comment, and he says, Basically, you're acting as if you have everything you want already. Already you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings. And, and that kind of sets up what their goal, their goal was to live like, like they were the royals, basically. Like for them, life was about how much privilege, how much power, how many positions and possessions can we accumulate for ourselves. And that's a mindset I think that we could relate to. It's one we're familiar with, right? The, get whatever you can. Uh, get it whenever you want and get it now. And, you know, that kind of lifestyle, it, it, it makes sense when your life is wrapped up in the things of this world. But once you get connected to Christ, that that orbit of life starts shifting. It shifts from, from me to he. Except sometimes the problem is it gets stuck and it doesn't shift the way it is supposed to. And, and in the case of the Corinthians, it, it hadn't. The problem was that self was in the center. It's what we just basically call selfishness, right? And selfishness wouldn't be that big a deal if it wasn't just so stubborn. You know, at least I can say from my own, my, in my own life it is. And, and, and the Corinthians, are, their mindset, they had Christ on the sidelines with themselves in the center. And so Jesus to them was some kind of like genie who was there to serve them. Hey, hey, Jesus, what do you got for me? What can you do for me? And, you know, maybe it surprises you, but churches can very easily get set up to showcase people's selfishness. It happens more often and more easily than sometimes we even expect Where it just becomes this place where, hey, look at me. Everybody, check me out, look at this position I have, look at these things I can do, look at this title I've been given, all these different things to stroke people's eagles, done in the name of spirituality. And that kind of selfishness, it always, it is bound to blow things up on a relational level. It was causing all kinds of fights and divisions and problems in their lives and in their church, and... So their next step in maturity was going from me in the middle to Christ at the center. And and maybe for some of us here this morning, maybe that's the next step for us as well. And so Paul steps in and he basically says this. He says, consider me a servant of Christ and a steward of the mysteries of God. So what he's doing here, he's kind of flipping the script, right? He's saying, Jesus isn't here to serve me. He already did that on the cross. I am here to serve him. Or, or a way you might say it is, he died for me, I'll live for him. That was sort of the motto of Paul's life. And that's, that's the model of maturity, that he's saying, I am on assignment, I am accountable, and I am here to please the Lord, that's my purpose for living. And he makes the point um, in verse seven, 6 to 7 to say, so are you and so am I. Here's what he says. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us to not go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So what he's making the point is that all of us are accountable. Um, So this model that's being laid out here is, it's not just something that's applicable to, you know, apostles and, you know, the spiritually elite, right? This This is the default setting of the Christian life. And so there's these two questions he asks. They're worth wrestling with for all of us. Number one, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you then received it, why do you boast as if you did not? See, maturity is recognizing that all that we have, all that we are, it's all grace start to finish. It's gift from God, not just salvation, but all of life. So that extends to our talents, our treasures, our time. They're all gifts. And if you've had success in your life, thank God for it. That's a gift from God. If you've overcome challenges, if you've endured through difficulty, that is grace from God. If you've been given insight into situations, that's a gift. And that perspective, what, is it, what it does is it kind of instills humility. It means there is no place for pride. There is never a reason to boast because the conversation is, it's never about me and everything that I've done to earn what I got. It's always about God and the grace he's poured out to bring me where I am. See, grace blows up this belief that I'm better than you. Or some are better than others. It's that delusion of the self-made man. Uh, that's where pride and selfishness take root. And, and grace, Paul's just pointing this out, it just it will not allow that. It absolutely will not allow it. It's all going back to God. So it's not that, yeah, I've worked harder than everybody else. Look at me. Let me pat myself on the back. No, if you did, then God gave you the strength to do that. Uh, you can't take credit for having an above-average IQ if you do, right? You, you didn't do anything to deserve that. That's that's a gift. God gave it to you. And so that's like the, the setting that maturity gets groomed in. And, and it recognizes also that to whom much is given, much will be expected. Or to steal a quote from the first and, in my mind, the greatest Spider-Man movie, with great power comes... Great responsibility, right? Uh, the passage basically describes that as stewardship. This idea of stewardship, it means that you've been put here on this planet for a purpose, that you are here at this time with a unique set of gifts, skills, experiences, and whatever else it is that you've been giving to, to serve a purpose that's bigger than you. And every one of us, we're all responsible to you with what we've been given. And stewardship, what it actually does is it brings us right to the place where meaning and purpose in life come from. And, uh, and I'll just say this, that this is where, this is where the rub comes in, um, at least in our culture, because we live in this world that tries in vain to do two things. They try to embrace the idea of accountability while at the same time maintaining autonomy, right? And The reality is, it's impossible. Autonomy and accountability are irreconcilable ideas. Because here's the thing, accountability by definition means that you are not just free to do your own thing. Stewardship kills that radical individualism that says, basically the motto of our age, right? Don't let anyone tell you what to do. You just go ahead and do you. Accountability won't have that. It accepts the reality that we have to give an answer. And that's not a bad thing. That's not something to be avoided. That is where purpose and meaning in life come from. It's, it's the reason because when we find out that what we do and how we spend our time matters, that's, that's where life starts mattering, right? And so, so you, can, you can have purpose, or you can maintain independence. But personally, as I think about it, I can't figure out how anyone with any kind of logical consistency can can maintain both. I think the closest you can get is to say, I'm responsible to me to be whatever I want to be, which basically brings you right back to where you started, which is self-centeredness. So, okay, I'm kind of getting deep. Um, I'm going to get off for a second. But before, I, I just will say this, that my conviction is that This radical individualism that our culture is absolutely obsessed with, that by definition is severed from purpose, I believe that is a big part of why hopelessness and despair are at epidemic levels in our culture today. Because maturity accepts accountability. And not just Accountability in some kind of vague, ethereal sense. Accountability is an easy thing to talk about it, but until you can answer the who question, who are we accountable to? Until you get there, it's just talk. It's just empty words. Yeah? And here's, here's the reality. The earth isn't going to hold you accountable. The universe isn't going to hold you accountable. Future generations aren't going to hold you accountable. They can't. None of those can but the God who created you, who went to the cross and died to redeem you. He is the one who all of us are going to stand before and answer to. And so it's for that reason that we see here that the adult in the room sets up their lives to please an audience of one. Maturity is about living life for God's approval and that's what's being modeled here. Paul explains it like this, is required of students, I'm sorry, not students, stewards that they be found faithful. And I that could be one of the like, you know, one of those verses where you want to just take the, the the highlighter and highlight that. I I think that about sums up the goal of the Christian life. Be found faithful. That's the mature Christian life. It's about orienting your life to honor God every day in every way, living today and tomorrow and every day in the future with a focus on getting to that final day when we stand before our Lord and we hear him say, well done, my good and faithful servant. See, there is nothing else in your reality that comes remotely close to mattering more. That's the adult in the room. That, we've, we've seen now the adult in the room. Here's, here's what it looks like. Now, the second part is how do we be that person? How do we cultivate that, that kind of maturity? Let me walk through a few principles that are laid out in, in this passage about aligning our lives in a God-honoring way. Uh, the first one is this. Care less about pleasing people. Paul says it this. He says, With me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. It's a beautiful thing to be able to say that. Pleasing God is not a popularity contest. And if you are one who cares too much about what people think of you, that's got to get dealt with to live a God-honoring life. And, you know, in this age that we're in, this social media age, we're all kind of being groomed and turned into people-pleasers. Uh, you know, it's called living to please an audience of everyone. And if you haven't figured it out yet, it's, it's exhausting and it's impossible. And there has to be a better way to do life than validating my existence based on how many likes I get. It's absurd. It's an absurd age we live in. And, you know, Paul, um, even in the first century, he had a share of haters at this church in Corinth. Uh, They found his presentation skills to be inferior to some of the other guys who were on the stage teaching. One guy in particular, Apollos, they found him to be a way more polished public speaker than Paul was. You know, there's always going to be people in your life who are ready to size you up, to identify your areas of inadequacy, and then try to define you by them. Sometimes in church, I think people think that criticism might be a gift of the Holy Spirit, a spiritual gift. Um, I've looked. It's not on there. But um, I have to admit that uh, for a long time, I had a bit of that in me. And there was a season where I thought, I thought if I'm able to point out people's weaknesses, then that means I'm insightful. I came to realize that it really made me annoying, (laughs) and and it exposed my spiritual immaturity. And I want to share with you um, how God worked to cure me of that. So, 20 years ago, uh, on the very first Sunday that we opened up this church, God, in his sovereign and infinite wisdom, sent the most arrogant and critical individual I've ever met in my entire life to our church. And this person spent two years criticizing everything and everyone, but he had one favorite target— To direct his criticism towards. And that was, of course, the pastor. And uh, without invitation, he would regularly inform me of everything I was doing wrong, highlighting how bad my messages were. And I will tell you, some of it was valid. Uh, I was and I still am. I'm a work in progress. But none of it was constructive. And after two years, he decided, this church doesn't measure up to my standards and my expectations. So he left, and parents uh, I'm sorry, parents pastors we have a word for that, a phrase for that. We call that addition by subtraction. Um, sometimes it's got to happen. But uh, he went on and did the exact same thing at two other churches, and then after that, he just checked out of church because no one was going to meet his expectations. Those were two very challenging but they were highly formative years in my life. God used that time to root out that part of me that just cared too much about what people thought about me. And that was a gift, because what I've discovered is that people-pleasing and pastoral ministry, it's a toxic combination. It just does not work. And, And it's why when I tell my story, I say, my plan was to build a church. God's plan was to build a pastor. And uh, that's a part of my story. But for all of us, no matter who we are, where we're from, spiritual, uh, spiritual maturity is going to mean caring more about pleasing God than pleasing people. And I'll take pleasing an audience of one over trying to please an audience of everyone every day. So in your life, expect to feel a tug of war. You're going to feel that tug of war. This is what God wants and on the other side, pulling out is going to be, this is what everyone else expects. And maturity is not about being indifferent to people. It's just recognizing that what God wants matters more. That's one principle. A second principle I want to make is, that, um, is to understand and not assume what pleases the Lord. So Paul says this, I do not even judge myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me? You know, accountability by definition, we already said, it takes us beyond our own self-assessment of how we think we're doing. And uh, it just points to the reality that God sets the standard, not me. That means the litmus test is not whether my conscience is clear. I think that's what Paul's getting at here. And that's kind of sobering to me as I was just thinking that through and processing it this past week. And Um, it means that I can can sleep like a baby. I can rest assured that I'm doing everything right and still be completely off base and blow it as a steward, as living a God-pleasing life. And the opposite is also true. There are some of us who are just overly sensitive. Our consciences are overly sensitive, and you feel guilty for everything all the time, right? And some of you guys you start a conversation and the first two words that come out of your mouth are, I'm sorry. For what? I don't know, but I'm sorry. And, uh, you know, follow Paul's advice here and stop judging yourself. But understand what pleases the Lord. Uh, Don't assume it. My first job out of college, I worked at a enterprise rent-a-car down in Yonkers. And, And we had a way of doing things there at that office that worked really well. And Um, and uh, it was kind of far from home, so I put in a request. I wanted to get closer to home, so um, eventually I got transferred to the Mount Kisco office, and my first day working in Mount Kisco was a Monday morning. It's always the busiest day of the week in the rental car industry, at least it was back back in the day, Um, and there was this big bulletin board with pins, um, with reservations of all the different places you had to pick people up, drop cars off, Uh, Back then, Enterprise was the car company that picked you up, and we did a lot of that. And so on my very first day, my very first assignment, the manager sent me out with instructions. Go to this car dealership, sign this car out to the customer, pick up another car, and bring it back to the office. Okay, I went out. But I also noticed before I went out that there on that bulletin board, there was a second reservation for a car right down the street, from where I was gonna be at that car dealership. So I took it upon myself to go there and take care of that. I thought I was being proactive. And honestly, down in the Yonkers location, that's how we did things. But what I should have known if I had taken the time to check was that the manager had already made other arrangements for that reservation. And not only that, he was counting on me bringing that car back to the office because he had somebody that was going to be waiting to sign that car out. And um, because of my ingenuity, none of that happened. It didn't work. And so, needless to say, I blew it big time on my very first day because I assumed that things in Mount Kisco worked the same way they did in Yonkers. And the point is don't assume. Don't assume what pleases the Lord, find out. Discover. Immerse your life in God's Word. Discover and discern what does a God-honoring life look like and what doesn't it look like? Because here's the reality. We all have this scary capacity for self-deception. Every single one of us. There is this propensity to compromise and to justify and to rationalize, and and we can very easily start taking our cues from the culture around us instead of living out God's call in our lives. What might that look like for your life? For some, it maybe it means something as simple as reconsidering uh, what we often hear in church circles. There's this urge to get our nation back to the good old days, you know, when when America used to be a God-honoring country. Um, I'll never forget sitting down with a woman of Latin origin, and she told me what that meant to her. She said, Pastor Brian, to me that means going back to to segregation, going back to a time when abuse was rampant, when people of different color had to go on different colors, different different train cars and use different bathrooms, women couldn't vote, and she just asked me, Pastor Brian, why are so many Christians so intent on going back to that. And I didn't have an answer. We had taken our cues from culture. You can't find that in the Bible. These days, the risk is just as real. When we take our cues on things like gender and identity and sexuality from the culture instead of Christ, and, you know, people are always going to be ready um, to just find some kind of passage in the Bible, rip it out of context and make it say something it doesn't say. And we can very easily find ourselves affirming lifestyles that, according to God, he sees them as abominable. And, uh, and so this is, this is something that matters, just, just if, you're, if you're living to please the Lord, if he says it's wrong, then it's wrong, no matter what the currents of culture are, are moving in. So assume less, discern more. Immerse yourself in God's word. Third point uh, is to be willing to wait. I know those of you who are parents of young kids, you've been on a road trip, you probably heard many times from the back car, the back uh, seat, are we there yet? Right? You hear that all the time. Are we there yet? Um, the Corinthian Christians, they were kind of exposing and expressing their immaturity by saying that. They they expected everything right now. Everything about salvation applied right now. And it sounds great, and there's plenty of preachers on TV who are going to tell you, you can have it all, and you can have it now. And if you don't have it all, then you probably just need more faith and send me a donation and you'll get it, right? That's, uh, that's kind of, you know, just cut and paste, copy, norm for what you hear on TV oftentimes. But, but maturity understands and recognizes that we are living in this in-between age. We are living in the in-betweens between the now and the not yet, between Jesus' first coming and, and his return, between that time when we're justified and pronounced righteous in God's sight because of Jesus' work on the cross and that time when he returns and we're glorified and we experience the fullness of his redemption. That happens upon his return and we're in this in-between time right now. And the point he makes is that now is not the right time to judge. He reminds his fellow servants, do not pronounce judgment before it's time, meaning before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. You're just getting at, here's the servant's job description, right? It's, servant's job description is to serve to serve God, not to size up your fellow servants. We are, we are in no position to do that. There's just way too much that we can't see, that we don't know about. So live out your life for Christ and leave the rest to him. Now, of course, it's important to read this in context. There's a difference between correction and, and judging. And so Paul in this book is doing a whole lot of correction, and, uh, and so where there's error, uh, when people go beyond the bounds of what's right and what's wrong, um, correction is the, pop, is the proper biblical response. The point he's making here is that we just can't discern what's going on in people's hearts. We can discern the what's, but we do not understand the why's. And so we can address actions, but we don't see motives. So just tread real carefully. So, one last point I want to make note of is um, when it comes to becoming the, the adult in the room, it's, it's unconditional surrender uh, to God's purposes. Um, so, let's just read, and I'm going to close um, with this. He says, uh, Paul says, For I think that God has exhibited um, us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and still are like the scum of the world, the refuse of of all things. That's, that's an astounding description. Very few of us who would put that on our wall and say, yeah, this is, this is my life goal to become like this, right? And I'll say, this is, this is a descriptive statement. It's not prescriptive. And so the point is not that we please God by setting up our lives to be as difficult as possible. That would make us sadistic, Um, The point is basically that servants don't serve with contingencies. It's unconditional. The, The adult in the room doesn't live to honor the Lord because it's easy or because of what's in it for me. The priority is on who we're serving, not how easy or hard a setting that we're serving in is. And so obviously, Paul is in a very challenging setting. He says, on a daily basis, I'm being treated like a fool. I'm treated literally like trash. And then he compares it with the Corinthians. He has have to say, where did you guys get the idea that following Jesus was about to make your life easier? Where'd you get that? Who told you that? Jesus promises that following him is the best way to do life. But nowhere does he ever say that it's going to fast-track us to easy street. Ultimately, maturity is expressed through Christ-like action. Paul here, he kind of sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't he? When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. Paul's imitating Jesus And in verse 16, he extends this invitation. He says, I do not write to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children, for though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. Fascinating invitation. Join in. Join in this life of unconditional surrender, of living your life to please the Lord no matter what. Jesus gives us something bigger to live for than our own comfort, than building our own kingdoms, than luxury and temporary pleasures that are wasting away. Maturity locks into the eternal things. And I would say this, that in any of our lives, if there isn't something about what makes us tick that apart from the reality of Jesus being alive wouldn't make any sense at all to the world around us, then there's a good chance that there's something in our lives that can grow in that area. So whatever the setting, whether it be easy or whether it be hard, set it. Set your life on pleasing the Lord. And to do that, there's very, very likely that there will be something that that needs to be adjusted. And so whatever it is that you're aiming at right now, if it's not that, then adjust your aim to please that audience of one. It doesn't matter what it takes. It doesn't matter what it costs. It will always be worth it, and it will be good. Let's